unique and special help that he gives and comes along the word of God as it's preached. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mere fact that we would not know grace if it wasn't for you. The world's grace uh, is not unconditional. It comes with all kinds of conditions. But your grace is unconditional and we have tasted it, those who believe in Jesus Christ into salvation. Your grace is rich and glorious to us. It draws us back to you time and time again. It is the basis of our salvation, but it is also the basis of our daily life. We live in your grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for that reminder in that song. You are the God of grace. Lord, we thank you for those that are here. So wonderful to see each and every person, families that are represented, singles, older and younger. Lord, we praise the Lord for each soul that you draw to yourself and cause them to engage in worship. But Lord, we also remember those who can't be here. Lord, we know the flus and the coughs and colds are going around. We pray for those who are not well. We pray particularly for those who are at a point where they can't return to public worship. Their body has let them down. They do not have the strength. And so we pray for them, Lord, that you would help them uh, finish well, to love you and uh, know you even in these last days. Lord, we pray for their their caretakers, Lord, who often get overlooked as well. Pray that you would be merciful and kind and you would help them, Lord. Lord, we thank you for missions around the world. What a joy to have missionaries coming this Wednesday, Lord, from both North Africa and Japan. Lord, we thank you that we are engaged with people that are sharing the gospel around the world. May you encourage our hearts and may you cause us to be challenged as we listen to these men and what's going on in places that are far far from our world. Lord, we thank you now for Jesus. We thank you that you have caused us to love him. And though we battle in our love for him, his love for us does not waver. And so, Lord, we pray that through this message we would be strengthened to love him more and deeply. And we'd long to see his face someday. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after finishing 1 Corinthians, I've been Playing around with that statement, love Christ, love his word, love his people. Last week we spoke on a love for Christ and that encouraged you. I know I heard from so many of you, it encouraged me. But then the more I got thinking about it, I thought, you know, it's hard to love Christ. I know that statement may strike you and I want to prove that today, that it is difficult to love Christ. For Certainly we know without the spirit of God, without the Father's work, it's impossible to love him. But even as Christians, we struggle sometimes, don't we? We get taken captive by thoughts of this world. But Jesus' love is astounding. And it's such a deep love that he gives his entire person to us and wants us to consume him. This passage today is a marvelous passage. It not only separated disciples, those who called themselves disciples, and then the true disciples in Jesus' day, but it still separates people to this day. People struggle with this passage. Trying to love a Christ who says such radical statements. As we drop into this text that Pastor Jerry read for us, we begin to see where 
John has been taking us. John's when walking us through this count of Jesus, and particularly in John chapter 6, on the discourse of the bread of life. His ministry has come to an end in Galilee. He is not going to return there anymore. He has now focused on Judea, so he's come down from the north. He's come down to the south. And he's working in that area, and he's going to stay in that area until he goes to Jerusalem and dies. I think what we see is so much effort by Jesus is concentrated on the cross from here on out. Today's passage is really a pinnacle in importance. John so far has been teaching that Jesus has claimed and made the claim that he's the son of God, he is the Messiah. And, and they're either now or at the point where they're going to see him as the savior of the world or they're going to see him as a deceiver, one of the two. And he's going to separate, in a sense, on this earth at this moment, sheep and goats. And you're going to see it right in this text. Those who love him, those who consume him, and those who don't. As Jesus is working through his ministry, each of these events that he has been dealing with, he claims himself to be the true Messiah. At first, the people are attracted to him. They come, they see his miracles. At the beginning of John chapter 6, here he withdraws from his disciples. They seek him out. They want more miracles. They want more things. Jesus has compassion on them, feeds them, feeds them bread. He miraculously makes bread appear and feeds them. Their response to this was they want it more. In fact, they wanted so more that they were willing to make him, the Bible says in verse 15 of this chapter, that they would take Jesus by force and make him king. If you can fill our bellies like this and you can crush our enemies, we want you as our king. And the people, they began to see in this text what Jesus claimed who Jesus claimed to be. And some of them don't like it. He's not the Jesus they were thinking. So soon, all the Galilean followers that have been running with him, many of them are going to turn away. They're not going to pass this test. They're going to turn away and follow him no longer. And then he's going to ask his 12, what do you think about me? Will you follow me? What will you do? And it's a good question. When times get tough, will we follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will we go the way of the world? As it all reflects our hearts and our salvation. The reality is, it's hard to love Jesus. <laughs> we fight our own battles, our own flesh. We, we, fight, we fight our own desires. We fight how we want Jesus to do things the way we want him to do. And yet, he is very different than us, isn't he? And that comes shining clear in this passage. We want to be fed. We want you to be our king. We want you to crush our enemies. And if you don't do things our way, we will not follow you. That's not a very good follower, isn't it? Followers follow Jesus because he is our king. He has completed all of the work and he has captured us. But this battle still rages today, even in Christians. We sometimes battle that flesh, that fight to, go, to do our own way, go our own way, live our life our own way. 
and yet say we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's worth looking through this event because I think it'll spark some thinkings in our own minds here and where we stand in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to spend the bulk of the time just on point one and then some uh, quick points uh, to kind of wrap that up and make us think uh, about our role in our love for Jesus. But let's look at this text. Number one, the bread of Christ is life-giving to one and choked on by another. Now, this is quite a statement. I know, I know it grabs you a little bit. It really came from a dear old friend of mine, an older pastor, who said, Scott, feed them sheep's food. Feed sheep food. Feed God's word. Don't tickle their ears. They'll either be consumed by Christ and devour that, or they will choke on it. One of the two. And so we have had the habit of here of feeding sheep food. That's what preaching is about. We preach Christ. We preach the truth of God's word. And if you're a sheep, you love it. <laughs> you desire it. You, you, you hunger for it. You want more of it. But if you are a goat, you choke on it. He went on to tell me, he says, remember the sheep love the food from the hand of the great shepherd. Goats are unattracted to it. I think this passage shows that. Drop in the text with me in verse 47 through 51 just to kind of pick up what's happening here. Notice in verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, here we come deep into the, uh, this great message, this great tr teaching on the bread of life. And he, he is teaching right in the heart of Israel. They know exactly what he's referring to. They know the connection between Moses and manna. And here he is telling them, I am the living bread. I'm not a bread that fades away when the day is gone. Such a stark difference. I'm the living bread. I'm sticking around. <laughs> In fact, I have the ability to give eternal life. So Jesus has now revealed just really the true nature of his coming, the true nature of his ministry. Notice at the end of verse 51, he says, which I will give for the life of the world. Now notice this, is my flesh. See, that's the nature of his life. He came to give himself. And anyone who feeds on him, who consumes him, will have eternal life. This is his statement. I think he chose these divine words carefully. Our Lord would never do anything carelessly. But it's to separate here. He's wanting now, he's headed to the cross. He wants to separate the false disciples from true disciples. And he does that often. And I think this is where churches that play around with the Bible and don't teach the text invite all kinds of people to come in, never challenge them to say, am I consumed with Jesus? Do I consume him? Is he that life? Is he the ways? Is he the truth? Is he everything to me? Or do I have Jesus plus something? Some type of identity that I have that makes me a Christian. Well, notice in verse 52, he goes on. Then the Jews began to argue. 
with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, the argument here, just as you look at this, helps you understand that there were some who said, hey, yeah, that's quite a statement and are supportive of it. But probably, and as we'll see in this text, there's even a larger amount of people who said, this guy's crazy. This, this, this is not right. They oppose this. See, the argument shows that they did not understand how it was possible to, to eat the flesh of Jesus. And you go, well, yeah, that is a tough one. But Jesus is doing this quite often. Remember, in John chapter 2, he says, look, this temple, this great temple, they're all look, looking around. The disciples say, oh, Jesus, what do you think about the temple? Look how beautiful it is. He goes, I'm telling you this, it's coming down. And in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. Was he talking about the building? He was talking about himself. And again, they didn't understand this until the Spirit of God came to help them understand these things. But he was often doing this to create confusion with those who were so tied up in their works. We do this, we do this, we get that. He's separating. And Jesus has always separated the sheep from the goats, and he's not done. There will be a day where all will stand before him, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. Look with me at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Now, that's quite a statement here. But notice he starts it out with this truly, truly, or your text may say, I tell you the truth. Well, this is the fourth time he said this in this. And, and when he says these things, there's this very deliberate, very important message that follows it. Just look back in verse 26. I just kind of want to... And see these four truly, truly's. 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves of bread and were filled. I mean, that's pretty sharp, isn't it? You, you have an alternative motive. You're not after me. You're after what I can give you. Something to fill your bed, belly. Verse 32, drop down. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. What a, a, a stark contrast to what they believed. Now, then he's going to go on, you know, I am the true bread. So I'm coming from the Father. I'm from the Father. You're seeking things that, that dry up, that, that don't even make it through the sunrise in the morning. That's what you want to hold on to. But I'm here forever, and I can give you forever. See these stark statements he's making. Notice verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Well, wait a minute. The Jews are going, no, no, you get eternal life through us. You come to the synagogue. You come through our ways. We determine who has eternal life. This man now is saying, no, no, eternal life only comes through me. Full sellout, full consumption, full belief in me. There's no other way. So these are such powerful statements behind these truly, truly. Now, drop back in verse 53 with the fourth truly, truly there. And this dividing line comes here. And notice in this dividing line, you have to eat my flesh. He adds now, you have to drink my blood. Uh-oh, now you've got a massive problem with the Jews. Because they're going back to Leviticus 17 going, man, if we, we, you're never to drink the blood. 
you remember this when we were working through Leviticus on Wednesday night. That was what the pagans did. They drank the blood and, and tried to consume the spirit of the animal so they could be stronger and better and greater and all that stuff. And God said, you don't drink that blood. That's not for you. That's pagan. And so here Jesus said, you got to drink my blood. <laughs> oh, I mean, the lid's coming off this thing. But Jesus knows. They, they, he doesn't have a New Testament yet, right? <laughs> no. um, and so he knows they know their Bible of some sort. And he's bringing them back to Leviticus and he's reminding them that there's life in the blood. You're not going to have eternal life unless you consume me. There's no way to have life. See, they're all after that. They all want the kingdom of God. They want eternal life. That's what they're drawn to. I'm going to do this and say this and not be with those people and all these things and keep all these rules. And then I can, I can go into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, there's only one way and you've got to drink me. You've got to eat me. You've got to be consumed with me. There is no other hope for you outside of me. Notice the words eat and drink here. They're very interesting. Um, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here from a ling linguistic point of view. Here he takes this word eat and drink. And in the Greek, the tense of them is a once and for all action. I think this is really important. There is a point in your life where you became a believer, where you consumed Jesus. You said, God, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing. I come to you empty-handed. There's nothing in me. There's no good works in me. I am not righteous. I don't deserve what I'm asking you to give me. But you come to him empty-handed, and he gives you, and you partake, and you believe, and you consume Jesus, and you put your God-given faith in the Son of God. And this is what he's talking about here in this verse here. He's talking about you, you must, you must unless, notice the little word there, unless. There's no other way. I got that circled in my Bible here. Unless. There's no other way to me. You eat me right now. It's one time act. Believe in me and drink my blood. Notice the last statement, which is very staggering. You have no life in yourself. You know where Paul gets this stuff when he says Christians, he says Christians in the Ephesus church, he says, you're dead in your sins before you were saved. Because Jesus said it. He said, you have no life in of yourself. Dead men walking. I've preached that sermon many times around the world. Dead men walking. That's who we are before salvation. And here, Jesus reminds us in verse 53, unless I am everything to you, you consume me, you are a dead man walking. This is the state of humanity. He's bringing them back to their knowledge of Leviticus and knowing that life was in the blood. And here he says, you drink me, you take me in. My blood is a gift of life to you. And, and, and if you don't have it, you will not be cleansed and you'll die just like your forefathers did in the wilderness. See, they just want it. Give us that bread again. Let the water just flow out of that rock. Then we won't need to work. Then you be our king. Everything will be set and we'll be great. He said, yeah, you'll die in your sins. You know, fat and happy people, financially, everything, they're just going to die that way. The richest people on earth, they're going to die in their sins. They have everything. They, they have what they want. They have power. They can control politicians. They can do all those things. All that stuff goes on. Then they die in their sin. And now what, have, what, what do you have when your soul is required of you? Look at verse 54. 
Now, there's a change here. Again, I'll, sh- I'll have to show it to you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, after that negative statement of saying, look, <laughs> um, if, if, if you don't take me in, you have no life within you. He turns around and, and really gives a positive statement. Eat me and drink me, and I'll raise you up on the last day. Now, this was going to cause a separation of a lot of people. Sadducees were going to go, whoa, we don't believe in the resurrection. Now he's pitting them against each other. Lots of things are going on there. But notice this word eat. I want to bring your attention to it. It is so amazing. He actually changes the word here. He does not use the same word he used in 53. He changes the word here in 54. In fact, it, he, he chooses a word that is just astounding. It's a word of not just a one time, just, you know, bite and eat and swallow. It is a word that you gnaw on, you chew on something, not, not because it's hard to, but because it's so satisfying. It's that whatever food you enjoy so much and you put it in your mouth and you go, oh, that's good. Now you're all hungry and you're thinking about lunch. Sorry about that. Um, it's, it's that favorite thing your mom cooks. That's the idea here. There, there's something so savory and it keeps you coming back. And so now he turns from what was once a once thing. You need to do this to something that is con- present continual. You need to keep chewing on me. You keep gnawing on me. Keep enjoying me. Keep being satisfied in who I am. That's what he's now turning to. Oh, he's showing the difference between those who are believers and those who are not. The word was used of those who... Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 38. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And uh, before the days of Noah entered the ark, it's that idea they were just completely, continually doing it. For 120 years, they were doing it. So Jesus is now using a verb to say, if you're truly a follower of mine, you're going to chew on me and gnaw on me and devour me and be satisfied in me, and it's never going to stop. See, that's the difference. Now, this means... You and I are partakers of Christ in our mind, in our hearts, in our souls. We were strengthened by him. And we find great delight continually. We're consumed in him. Christ is pleasurable to us. He's satisfying us. He's irresistible to us. The more I hear him preach, the more I read of him, the more I sing about him, the more I desire him. As you grow older in the faith, you can't wait to see his face. You're ready to go when he calls because you love him. See, that's the desire that continues, continues to grow in us. But that's hard, isn't it? That's what I'm going to get to. It's hard, right? This life is difficult. It's challenging. And, and by tomorrow morning, a million things are going to try to pull your mind somewhere else. You may not be consumed with Jesus tomorrow. And so that's why you come back and you study your Bible and you come back to Wednesday and you come back to Sunday and you go to BFGs and you get in a, a discipleship group because it's hard, right? Because our, our, our minds are always pulling us away. Our hearts are always drawing us. There's a pull on us to our old flesh at times. This is why we study so much. You know, if you're, and please don't get mad and walk out on me. If you're, if you're a once a week or once a month Christian that just shows up, um, you're going to struggle, I'm here every week because I need it. I need this. I need this time in the word. I need this time with you. I need to be sharpened by other Christians to help me love Christ. Because every time I wake up in the morning, my little flesh is going, hey, what are we going to do today? And the whole world starts to resolve about me, doesn't it? Is that right? That's true, isn't it? 
You know that. And so he's trying to draw our attentions. Are we satisfied? Am I going to get going? 55. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now his opponents here, they're altogether wrong, right? They're thinking what Moses had and what the manna was and the rock and the will. That was everything we need. We need that again. He says, no, you don't. I am, and notice, look at those words, it's so important. I am the true food. I am the true drink. That was all pointing towards me. That's why I'm called the bread of life. That's why I am the living water that you'll always be satisfied with. Because this is true. That was all pointing towards me. Oh, brothers and sisters, we've got to understand that. There's so many people get lost in Old Testament and hope we can just go back to that and want to keep this and do that. Hey, the Old Testament is beautiful and you know I love teaching it and studying it, but it's all pointing forward. Christ has completed that. Now, look with me at verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now notice the stress between Jesus and his atoning work on the cross and the believer's fellowship with him. There's an tr- amazing stress, and it comes with this little Greek word, meno, abide or remain, your Bible might say. It's in a continuance tense here. It's not a fleeting moment. You remain in him. He's in you, you are in him, and he's in the Father. And there's this incredible close relationship between the one who is the eater, the one who's captive, the one who's consuming Jesus, and Jesus being the one who needs to be consumed. There's this amazing close relationship here. It's not a distant relationship. It's not just a Sunday relationship. It's not just what's a month relationship. It's a daily, daily living with him. This is why it's hard at times, isn't it? We're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God I love. Why did the hymn writer write that? Why would he dare write that? I'm a Christian. I love God. I love Jesus. Why would a hymn writer dare write that? Because it's true. (laughs) And the more, the quicker you and I get to the point where we say, yeah, that's true. I am prone to wander at times. And so I'm going to go back and consume Christ. Enjoy him forever. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Well, this verse tells us that the Son shares life with the Father. It's it's a great statement of coexisting in equality with the Father. (laughs) I mean, you get the Son, you get the Father. And he's not done. He's going to show us the Spirit too. You're going to get the whole Trinity when you come to Jesus Christ and you consume him. This is the blessing of being a believer. And so, Jesus can offer eternal life. He can offer you a relationship with the Father. You'll live because of Him. Verse 58, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven. Not, clear distinction here, not as the fathers ate and what? Died. You want to die in your sins? Hang on to something that's not eternal. That's exactly what he's warning them. He who eats this bread will live forever. He's making a clear comparison, a clear distinction right here. There's a difference between man-centered religion and Christ-centered religion. Do this, do that, don't eat this, don't be with those people, do all that. Love Christ. Put your faith in him alone. Such a clear distinction we see our Lord making here. And the Son has life in the Father, and, and, and we have life in the Son. And the Father gave us to Jesus as this 
beautiful love gift. And, and, and we receive him and we consume him inwardly, not outwardly. Again, these, this is why it's hard. Uh, and I know it's a hard title. It's hard to love Christ because there's so often we are so consumed with the outside. What do people think of us? How, what are we going to say when we walk into the building? Um, are, are we going to show any weaknesses? See, we're always in this self-protecting mode. See, Christ came to reside within us. And he starts to live within us so it comes out. There's times where we love Christ so much it helps us say, you know, brother, I'm not doing well. I've struggled this week. I need someone to pray with me. Would you get in a Bible study with me? Would you help disciple me? See, that's, 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 I think, a love of Christ. That's what draws that out instead of, well, hey, I'm great, man. And yet, things aren't great. Look at verse 59 with me. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Well, why does that little, why does John just throw that in there? You think it's just kind of a filler verse? Because you need to understand the synagogue was the way to heaven. Remember when he threatens the blind man in John 9 and the blind man's parents that they're going to be kicked out? You know what he's doing there? What those Pharisees are doing? They are saying, if you challenge us, we'll throw you out of the synagogue and there'll be no way for you to inherit the kingdom of God. And so here John brings this out in this, in this great story here, this great understanding of what's going on in Jesus' life here, this great dialogue, because it's happening not somewhere in the streets, not down by a pool, nowhere else. It's actually happening right in their synagogues. And Jesus is saying, you think this is all going to get you here? You think coming here and doing this and giving that and not doing this and not wearing that and all that's going to get you here? You're wrong. I am the only way. You need to consume me. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Well, here it really reflects an obstinate attitude to Jesus, right? I, I looked at the literal kind of word by word out of the Greek. It says this, this, is this, way. this is a hard saying. Who is able to listen to him? Not listen to it. Listen to him. This is a hard saying. And again, it's, it's clear they, they understood what Jesus is saying. They just don't like it. They're saying, this, wait a minute. We got to eat you and drink you? They're getting the message right. They're just not understanding it. You think, well, maybe everybody doesn't understand it. Well, the disciples don't fully understand it, but they still follow him and believe him. Look at verse 61 with me. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? <laughs> Man, Jesus, you know, take it easy. They're about ready to kill you. And he just keeps pushing, doesn't he? It's like you just put the foot on the pedal a little more. You go, whoa, whoa. You're standing in their synagogue. Does this cause you to stumble? Well, he's, he's doing exactly what Isaiah 8.14 said. 8.14 said that the Messiah is going to come and he will be a stumbling block to the Jews. And he certainly has. Peter quotes it as he goes to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and speaking on that he says he is a rock of offense, right? A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And he certainly was. And you think, that was difficult. Look at verse 62. Now, man, Jesus. Then, what then? 
You can't hear this. It's too hard for you. Am I a stumbling block to you? And then he puts it at one more level. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Oh, no, Jesus. <laughs> what if, <laughs> if you can't get that, what if you see me going to heaven, going and, and going to the right hand of the Father with all authority and all the power of the heavenly Father has and is given to me? What if you see that? And that's exactly what happened. Remember, they arrest him. They take him to the chief priest's house. They beat him and mock him, and they start to challenge him. And they say, are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And he says, I am. And the next time you see me, I'll be at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says they tore their clothes and rushed at him. Same thing happened in Stephen, chapter 7 of Acts, after his great discourse on the history of Israel and the killing of the Holy One. And, and there, as they're stoning him to death, in his last moments of death, he, God opens up in a beautiful vision to him, Jesus at the right hand. He begins to relate what he's seen, and the Bible says they just rushed at him and murdered him. It's hard to love Jesus. Most people don't. This is the world we live in. This is why you can talk about God, but you have a hard time talking about Jesus in many places, at least the Jesus of the Bible. Look at verse 63 with me. There's a lot of hope here. It is the Spirit who gives life. Flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Isn't this beautiful? He introduces the third member of the Trinity now. He himself, you consume me, you get eternal life. My Father will give it to you because my Father has life. He's given me life, and I'm in him, and you are being me. And now, not only that, I'm going to give you the Spirit. I'm going to give you our Spirit. And he, he, he's going to give you the ability, something you cannot do on your own flesh. He's a life-giving Spirit. Remember when Nicodemus came, he was so confused about how to be born again. And Jesus said, look, flesh is flesh. That's what flesh produces. But the Spirit produces Spirit. That's how you're born again. It's a work of the Spirit. So Jesus reminds them here, because this is a hard saying. Some people are already starting to say, I don't want to follow this. I can't follow this. He goes, look, I'm going to give you the helper. Right? He's going to get more into that in 14. And we looked at that last week. Uh, 14 and 16. I'm going to give you the helper to help you understand life. And so the Spirit grants life through the finished work of Christ. Man on his flesh is just left with a uh, 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 disunderstanding of things of God. Every time Jesus speaks of the Spirit, it's in conjunction with life, when you follow it. You just look down through the Scriptures. Every time Jesus brings up this role of the Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter, all of that, it has to do with life, eternal life. And so he knows they need help. I think the Apostle Paul picked up on this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because he can't, they're foolish to him. You can't understand them. They're spiritually appraised. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the Spirit. I think that's beautiful. See, there, you, can, you can see where things just progressed out of that synagogue and even into uh, to modern day. There's people who come and um, next week we'll have a Lord's table and, and the table's there and they, they eat that bread and they drink that cup and they think that they are consuming, getting Jesus through that. See, they're still physical. Uh, see, I do these things and I get this. They, under, they, they misunderstand the work of the Spirit of God. Those things are there to remind us of the finished work of Christ. We don't gain Christ through those. And yet still, the world still does that. And Jesus says, no, the Spirit's going to help you understand it only comes through me. Verse 64, but there were some 
But there are some of you, Jesus says, who do not believe. Look at this. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Can you imagine having a ministry where everyone you look at, you know whether they know that they love you or don't? There's no hiding from him. He sees all things. He is God. And even though he is in flesh, he still is God incarnate. He sees all things and knows all things. And believing and look, believing and coming to Jesus are these parallel truths. So he knows who's coming. He knows who's following. He knows who's believing. And so I think what he's doing in 64 here is he's separating false disciples from true ones. Paul again wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 19. He says, the Lord knows whose are his. To me, that is such a comforting verse. I do not have to figure that out. Now, I need to preach the gospel. I need to share Christ with people. I need to plead that God would save lost family members, friends, family, co-workers, all those things. But I don't have to be responsible for their salvation. The Lord knows. In fact, anytime you watch churches and certain theology move towards that, so now the persuasion comes so heavily because man is trying to get man saved. (laughs) That's not what the Bible teaches. God gives life. And he gives it through Jesus Christ and his spirit. Notice in, again in verse 65. And he was saying this, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it be granted him by the Father. See, listen brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to get this, understand this. You are a gift from the Father to the Son. Is that not humbling? Me, a gift? Man, I know my heart, I know my mind, I know my tendencies, I know, oh, Lord. He gives you, and this verse is so beautiful, look at this again. For this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Why is he saying, for this reason, I've said this to you? Well, back in verse 44, just a few moments before, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So how do you get to the Son? Through the Father. He draws you. And, the, and then, then Jesus says later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father. There's this equality of work in the Godhead of bringing us to himself. And we rejoice in that. Look at verse 66. And as a result of this, hmm, many of his disciples withdrew and were no longer walking with him anymore. Well, clearly the term disciple must mean several things, Right? Is that true? Because you read that verse, you go, wait a minute, it says his disciples. Is this Peter, James, John, Andrew? I mean, all those? No, no. It's, it's a, in its simplest term, it just means a follower. There are all kinds of disciples of people out there, isn't there? But these were the faithless. These were the ones who in no way were going to consume Jesus. <laughs> no way am I going to humble myself and put my faith in this one. Look at me, I'm a head of a synagogue, I I worship, I give, I do all these things, there's no way. And Jesus is just merely showing the difference. The the verse literally says this when you translate it out in the Greek, it says, they turned their backs to him and could not walk with him any longer. Now, that was a way in that society to show complete disapproval. 
I will turn my back to you. That's what they did. This isn't just, well, you know, I'm going to have to go home and think about that. This is complete rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a revealing glimpse of the nature of Jesus' ministry. Do you know most people rejected Jesus? Out of the thousands. When we just take his feet and take one time, it says he fed uh, uh, 500 men. And it uses in the masculine terms, so it would, that doesn't include women and children. And so conservatively, in a sitting on the side of a hill, he fed 20,000, created bread in front of them. And yet, this is the glimpse of when Jesus' ministry gets done, he's got 120 trembling people in an upper room. <laughs> this is his ministry. But it, I'll tell you what is so encouraging about that. Nothing stops him from going to the cross. Little crowds, large crowds, doesn't matter. He's going to the cross. That's where he is going because that's what he's come to do. 67, so Jesus said to the 12, here, now it's going to get real personal. Do you want to go away also? Do you? <laughs> this is a dramatic moment. The Jews are literally turning their back to Jesus. The large crowds that were just earlier in the chapter, hey, let's make him king. They're all abandoning him. And in this dramatic moment, Jesus turns to the 12. You've heard the sermon. You've seen the reaction of the others. You see the defection that's going on of these so-called disciples. What are you going to do with me? Man, this is pinnacle. This is the peak. He knows these others are going. I mean, I, can only, I put myself in the shoes that studying this this week. I thought, oh, Lord. And maybe we'd be like, Peter, I don't understand all this, but you have the words of life. <laughs> we believe you're, you're the son of the living God, as we'll say in Matthew 16, right? And, and so the true, even though they don't understand everything, this is so important, but you may not understand all the theology in the Bible and all the deep truths where we spend our lifetime pursuing those things. But you may not understand all that, but here's what you do know. I'm a sinner, and you died for me, and you're my only hope for life. That's it. You have the words of life. And I think that's where these men were. And if you're here today, brother or sister, friend, you say, I've tried everything, or I've, I've done all these lists of things. Look, coming to Jesus is a God-given faith that he puts in your heart that makes you go, I only need you. And I abandoned, I turned my back on all the things that I thought I could bring. And I present myself in front of you empty-handed. See, that's the difference. And that's why these men, outside of one, went on to follow him. Look at verse 70, um, uh, 69 through 71. We have believed that you are the Holy One of God. We've come to know it. We've come to gnoskis it. We've come to embrace it. That you're the Holy One. We don't, we don't quite get our mind around this eating and drinking yet. We're going to get there when you give us the Spirit. I'm putting words in their mouth. Uh, but, but we come to know, we come to believe with all of our hearts that you're the Holy One. And Jesus answered them in verse 70, did I myself not choose you? You want to know why they could say what they said in verse 69? Is because God chose them. <laughs> you don't, listen, oh, here's the message here. You don't get there on your own. <laughs> 
God has to do a supernatural work with us, brothers and sisters. Now, in closing, I want to just go down through some thoughts. I think number two is well known in a church that teaches the Bible. Number two, we said it's hard to love Christ because the spiritually dead cannot. I think it all starts there. When you want to make a statement, it's hard to love Christ, you've got to kind of think through this. I spent the week thinking through this. Well, number one, it starts with, I'm not in Christ. No wonder I can't love him. It's hard to love Christ because I'm dead. Jesus himself said there's, there's no way in verse 44, unless, there's that word again, unless, unless this Father, this God who gives life, grants life, unless he, he alone, draws you, drags you to himself, you will not be raised on the last day victorious. You'll be raised to judgment. And so right there we know it's hard to love Christ in our dead spiritual state. Romans 3 tells us there's none righteous, there's none who seek after God, none who seek after Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Matthew chapter 7 says it's a narrow gate, few can come in, and it's narrow because you can't bring anything with you. It's trying to get your, your, your double stroller through the turnstile at Disneyland. It ain't going. And now it's like going through, you know, the airport, you know. You're almost naked by the time you get through there. That's the idea. (laughs) We come in with nothing. (laughs) This is why it's hard to love Christ because the world cannot get this. Let me give you one more thought along this. 1 John 4, 19 says, he loved us first. Ooh. He has to love you first because you won't love him unless he loves you. And we talked about last week, for God so loved the world. He has a love for his creation and all those who are made in his image. There's a certain love there, but he loves his children. He has to love you first. See, that's why it's hard to love Christ when you don't know him too. But now as Christians, let's think about this. It's hard to love Christ because it's costly and we must die daily. Okay, so now we get into some application here of some of this. Oh, my goodness. It's hard to love Christ because it's costly. Jesus, in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 9, was saying to them all, all the disciples, all that were there, anyone who wishes to come after me, he must die, excuse me, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What are you going to do tomorrow morning? I don't know what all your lives are. Many of you are going to go to work. Many of you are going to go to a doctor's appointment. Um, drop kids off of school. I, I, I don't know. Whatever you're doing, are you going to follow Jesus in it? See, you're going to wake up tomorrow, and there's going to be a battle for your heart and your mind right when you wake up. It's just a battle. And, and see, that's why he says die daily. The elders, and we were having a conversation about this, I think, this week, and why it's so important to help people engage in discipleship and Bible study and prayer and, and, and gathering. It's so important because there's so much we're fighting internally. It's hard to love Christ because it's costly. I must die. What are you going to do when they say you sign this and you live this way and it's totally contrary to the Bible? What are you going to do when that day comes? Lose your job, lose whatever. What are you going to do? A lot of people are up against that right now. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24 and following, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit, much fruit. 
We've got to die daily. Four, it's hard to love Christ because God's ways are not our ways. We know that passage in Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. For as from the heaven are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts not your thoughts. I think this is one of the most challenging things that's going on in Christianity, is we're trying to make our ways God's ways. And it's clashing. And it's separating churches. Because it's coming down to the central truth of the gospel God's ways are not our ways. But now the church is trying to say, no, God, your ways need to be our ways. We, don't, we, we, can't, we can't get fired over this. We can't get this. We can't have this happen to me. We can't do this. So there's this battle going on of how we can have a foot in the world and a foot with God. See, it's, it's hard to love Christ because we're up against these type of things all the time. Matthew 22, Jesus said, You've answered right to the lawyer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your, uh, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength. This is the greatest of commandments. You know, every time I, I probably have it written in many of my Bibles, is the only one who's ever done that is who? That's right. And so why does he give it to us? Because that's our daily pursuit, Right? See, this is why it's hard, right? Christ did it perfectly. He loved the Father with everything. All of his being, he loved the Father. We battle at that, don't we? We struggle with idols of our heart, things that sneak in, things that shouldn't be there. And we have to repent of those things, and that's good, and he forgives us because he died on the cross for those things. But there is this ongoing learning to love Jesus, learning to love our Father in heaven with everything we have. I was reading Acts chapter 4 this week, and the believers there, they got saved. And they lived as one heart and one soul. They took everything they had, they made it common property and gave it to each other. There was no one in need. You know, life might get that way if American church goes through persecution. But that's, I think that's what we're after. Okay, it says, it says they sold their homes and their property. For Jesus. I have no way of <laughs> saying that's what we're doing here. But I, I, is that kind of, kind of commitment? See, see, it's hard to love Jesus. He may ask for everything. Most of the time he doesn't. He may ask for your health. He may ask for your finances. He may ask for your relationships. He may ask for all of that and says, will you follow me if I allow this into your life? See, it's hard to love Christ. And you can't do it on your own. Without the word of God and the people of God and the spirit of God in your life, this is the only way we live for him. Five, it's hard to love Christ because he calls us to suffer. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, the whole context of suffering, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Hmm. Suffering's no fun, is it? How do we suffer? Do we suffer for Jesus? Do we suffer for his glory? And it's hard. Man, I have watched some of you caretakers and some of you have gone through things here um, uh, health-wise, uh, relationship-wise. I've seen you suffer. Many of you have been such a great encouragement to me. It's hard to love when you're suffering that deeply. 
But he says, look, I, I'm going to give you the ability to do that. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I, I want you to suffer for me. I think every one of us want to do that. Six, it's hard to love Christ because we must move as one. This was one of the last things I thought about. We must move as one. You know how hard it is to move as one? If you're at some company that some CEO guy will come out and say, we're going to do an exercise together. We're all going to climb this rope at the same time or something. I go, great, how are we going to do that? The Bible teaches us that we are one. We are the body of Christ, and we are to move as one. Arms and hands, eyes, ears, the whole body engaged together. Does the American church do that? We are so independent, right? We got this going over here, and we get all separated. It's hard to love Christ because he says, I want you to move as one. Not, Not a bunch of individuals. We're all individuals of Christ made up as one body. It's hard to do that. Because we get frustrated with someone who doesn't do something the way we want them to do it. So then we start another group over here. Or another one over there. See, it's hard. But let me just close with this. And I want to close with the encouraging statement. We love Christ when we are consumed, constantly consumed with him. God loves you, believer. You are undeserving of it, as me as well. He loves us. He's forgiven me of my sins. They are never to be counted against me again. He redeemed me. He bought me from the pit. I was headed there. I was on the eternal slave block, and he bought me. He delivered me from my condemnation that I deserved. He delivers us from, he's freed us from our sins. He's declared us to be righteous forever. He never sees us outside of the righteousness of his son. He clothes us in that. He sets us apart now as his family members, taken us from the world, taken us from Satan's family, and made us part of his. And we now are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal is secure. Is that a reason to love him? Is that a reason to keep running after him when it's hard and difficult? Amen? Lord, thank you. Uh, we need to be reminded that even in your ministry, things got really dramatic. <laughs> They got difficult, and it got down who was a follower and who wasn't. It is those who are consuming Jesus. That's the followers. Consumed by him and continuing to gnaw on him and chew him and find satisfaction and delight in him, Lord. May we be a church full of those people, Lord, and drawing others who desire it. In Jesus' name, amen.